morning, saints. Morning, sinners. Obviously, today is Father's Day. The one year where we take time and it's set apart to remember, to honor our dads. For many of us, this is a great day. For many of us, we have fond relationships or memories of fathers. I thank God for my own dad. Uh, he's a godly man who faithfully brought me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're old school, you know what I'm talking about. He instilled in many things in me, in my life, for which I'll be eternally grateful, no, although he's no longer with us anymore. I still have great respect to him for this day. One of the things I'm doing right now is actually renovating my mom's house, my dad's house. My dad was a painter. Uh, my dad was everything. He was a... He worked for the city of Winnipeg. He was a full-time pastor at the same time, full-time employed by the city, full-time pastor, also a painter. Uh, he dropped out of high school in order to support the family. Um, you know, his father had some issues, and that's why my dad had to leave school and go off. And so it was very important for myself and my older two brothers that we would have post-secondary education. And, and dad gave everything. And it's funny because now I'm renovating the house and this house literally hasn't been touched since the day I was born. The windows are circa 1963. If you remember those, uh, there are individual panes that slide back and forth. Like it's, it's just crazy. And my dad was meticulous. And there's his, the kitchen <clears throat> was mahogany cabinets. Uh, there's a feature wall, a mahogany feature wall in the living room. So this is, you know, 1960. We moved in when we, uh, 1964, but built in 1963. And uh, I remember always asking dad, dad, let's paint them. Well, that was, as a painter, like that, my dad would go nuts. So over the past uh, month now, as we've been doing renos, um, I've actually been hearing my father roll over in his grave n numerous times, <laughs> painting and touching and, and redoing things and kicking out walls. But it's interesting because as I do this, I, I have memories, I have respect uh, that come through. But I'm very much and acutely aware of the fact that every, not everybody has the same experience with their earthly fathers. You know, let's be honest, some were tormented, some were even abused. Others are dominated. Maybe your father was a tyrant, right? Others are ignored or even deserted. And there, then there are those who really never knew who their earthly father was. And to this day, in our calendar, there are people who have issues. So today I want to talk about daddy issues. Is that all right? You know, we're here, we're gathered as a church, we sing songs, we say prayers uh, that have the lyrics or the phrases, God the Father. And the fact is, that actually makes some people squirm. The real issue for most people, especially within our Christian realm or those who come to church, is not whether or not is there a God. I think the real issue is what kind of God is He? What's he really like? Does he really matter? And the problem is we have some very strange ideas about what God is like. And unfortunately for most of us, our, we get our ideas about who God is by actually comparing him to our parents. Track with me here. If you have a bad father or a bad mother, you know, if you have a parent who 
was unloving, then we tend to look at God the Father as unloving. If your parents were somebody to be feared, then you tend to think that God is to be feared. You know, if you had parents who were abusive, sometimes we tend to think that God is abusive. If you have a parent who is uncaring, obviously then we think that God is uncaring. And so what happens now is instead of making, instead of God making you in His image, you make God in your image. I want you to think about that for a bit. So I want to start with the negative this morning. Pastor guy, pastor guy, pastor guy, by the name of Mike Bickle, in a book he wrote called Passion for Jesus, he describes the types of earthly fathers that have warped our view of God, especially as God the Father. The first one, he says that, that there, there's this distance or, or passive father. And this type of father expresses his affections really in a minimal way. And maybe you, some, some of you can relate to this. He assumes you know he loves you. All right? But he rarely speaks it. And often you don't know or see uh, his, uh, he doesn't show or immerse any pity or, uh, or pain or joy, whatever. He's just distant and he's passive. And whether something wonderful or something tragic happens, this is the father just, just sort of nods his head. And so what happens is if you have a father like that, we begin to think that God is like that as well, that, that God doesn't feel or share our pain or our joy and that he has very little affection to us. Or maybe there's the authoritarian father. And the authoritarian father always sort of intervenes to stop what you're doing. The authoritarian father hands out the lists of do's and don'ts, right? He interrupts you. He says no to the things that are important to you. And some of you are going not amen, but ouch. You understand where I'm going with this. And what happens is when, as fathers that, who do that, it, it quenches the hearts of their children. And this kind of father doesn't honor your individuality he is not interested in your desires or goals. It's usually only his own. And the authoritarian partner doesn't want any partnership or deep intimacy. Really, the authoritarian partner, a father, sorry, really just wants to be obeyed. Then there's the abusive father. And of course, these are the fathers who afflict pain on their children, deliberately hurting them. Emotionally, mentally, physically, sometimes sexually. And there is no greater torment in the life than the torment at the hands of an abusive father. There's the absent father. Maybe he's a father you never knew. And perhaps even dying before you were born. He's not like the passive father who's there yet doesn't communicate. He's simply never there. And therefore, he never intervenes to help you in times of trouble. And you feel totally abandoned and even neglected because there's a space missing in your life. Then there's the accusing father. This is the father who says that they love you with their whole heart, but judges you continually at every failure. You know, in his mind, he's trying to motivate you. He's trying to make you, you know, you do, do right. He, he just thinks that if he can point out your failures, you'll be motivated to try harder next time. He rarely shows affection. He rarely affirms you. 
And if you grew up with, type, with this type of father, you have great difficulty understanding the love of your heavenly father because you think that God is always accusing you. That's a tough subject, is it not? But let's just call it for what it is today. What comes to mind when you hear God described as father? As you sit there, what comes to your mind when you hear God described as father? What is your concept of the creator? You know, I've talked with people who, who relate to God, not as father, but more, you know, God's more like a coach, you know, if you could say that. You know, there's no real relationship per se. They, they, you know, at least not on a personal level. And so that what they do is they join the church, so to speak. It's kind of like joining a team, right? We're part of the team, rah! You know, and when God, you know, chooses to communicate, it isn't with soft spoken words and tenderness of loving encouragement. It's usually um, an angry shout, right? You know, run faster, jump higher, you can die. Yeah, that's, that's their concept of God. Two more laps, you know, make it happen. Or some actually think God is more of a teacher. You know, you being a Christian means, well, I got to study harder. I got I to do that. I got to learn more. I got to memorize these doctrines. I got to understand the text of scriptures. And then, you know, regurgitate it because there's going to be a test coming. I know there's going to be a test. You know, that's our understanding of God. And I have to get all A's right? I got I to gotta graduate to that next level of spirituality, whatever that is and however we do it. And so God's primary role in your mind is that, you know, we make sure that we spell his name right and assign detention. When we misbehave, we give ourselves a timeout, right? And then there are those who see God as boss, you know, you know, we as Christians, we're just employees, so to speak, in this realm, and we're responsible for getting to work on time. 909, just saying, you know. You can say amen or ouch, or I'll drink to that, but I'm just throwing it out there for you, right? You know, that we got to put in our solid eight hours of work to please the boss. And God is there principally to fill out the performance reports. Am I doing the right thing the right way? And he's there to decide who gets a raise, who gets a vacation, and who gets fired, literally. And so to talk about God the Father actually becomes very risky on a Sunday morning. It's no different than on Mother's Day. Because not only does it compute, it confuses and actually angers people. And so it's quite possible that some of you are here today are angry. I've, I've pressed too many buttons. Because the very word father can possibly evoke an image of an abusive bully with a stick in his hand. You know? Others think only of a void in their home. The never-present father whose selfish disregards for their needs hurts, hurts as much now as it did back then. And as I talk about this, some of you are going back into your past. You're going back into your memories. And it may be that you are hearing the word father and you smell the stench of alcohol. Perhaps you feel the abusive hand groping where it shouldn't be soon after you've fallen asleep. God knows. You know, he's keenly aware of how difficult it is for you to entrust your soul to another. Especially when your former wounds have yet to heal. I need to say this. You need to hear this. He is a father unlike any other. His love transcends that of even the most caring earthly parent. 
And so here's the hope. Here's the promise this morning I want to share with you. That none of us, none of us need live without the fatherhood of God. He loves every one of his children without distinction. He is faithful. He is true to the utmost. There is none, hear me carefully, there is none like him. His paternal care is not just a replacement or a compensation for those who haven't really known an earthly father's love. No, when we look at scripture and we see who God is, he is the truest father of all. And every one of us is in need of his love. Let me explain. God is by nature a father. You know, he, he has a father's heart. We sing about it. We read about it. It's the very nature of who God is. God is father. We see this revealed in his relationship to creation. He has created all things. He sustains all things. He is con continuously with meticulous care. And we listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why would you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, and which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has its own trouble of its own. So God by nature is a father. Also, and I'm, I'm just going to throw this out here because some of you are going, yeah, but what about the feminine? Yeah, there is the feminine side of God. I preached a message called the motherhood of God. I'll come back to that, that one day too. But today is Father's Day. And that's where I'm landing this plane. So God is by nature father, but even to say that is not enough. The Bible goes further. The Bible goes further. God is the model father. And this is where many people get it all backwards because people say, well, you talk about God being the father, you know, you should have met my dad. He was a user. He's abuser. He's a tyrant. He was a molester. He was absent. Don't talk to me about fathers. I've heard these conversations. I've been a part of it. If God is like a father, then I don't want to know him. Listen, God is not like a father. God is the father. He is the father. The Bible shows that God is to be the model of fatherhood of which all fathers are judged. Isn't that wonderful, man? Yeah, if, if you want to know what a true father is, don't look at your earthly father or my earthly father or any other earthly father, regardless of how good they appear to be. Open the pages of the scriptures and see the heart of God the Father revealed in the nature of God. He is the model. The one who is faithful, the one who is true, the one who is just, the one who is merciful, the one who is compassionate, the one who is slow to anger, the one who is loving, the one who is affectionate, the one who is providing, the one who is patient, the one who is kind, and I can keep listing it on, and I can't measure up, no matter how good I try. Matthew 23, 9 says, don't call anyone on earth your father, or one, for one is your father. He who is in heaven. And it's sort of a strange verse. We'll uh, uh, 
extrapolate that a little bit more as we get to it further down as in our series of Matthew. But I look at that and I go, what does it mean? You know, should I be calling my dad by his first name instead? No, not at all. Jesus is speaking here in an ultimate sense. In the same passage, he says, don't call anybody else teacher for, for, you know, Christ is our teacher. But we know that in other parts of scripture, it's clear that if we cannot receive earthly teachers given by God, when a teacher comes given by God and starts teaching you and you can't receive which is being taught, that's a sign on you of your immaturity. And so Jesus is addressing that aspect. And what Jesus is saying is that we're not to look to any man as our ultimate instructor. That place belongs to Jesus Christ. Men make mistakes, right guys? We screw up. It doesn't matter how much we try to be good dads or bad dads. Many times I just accuse myself of being a bad dad. I have to confession. I have two sons that I conscript and I do forced labor. I still do children, child labor in my house. Why? Because I feed them and I clothe them. But... I'm also six foot four, and I, they're still afraid of me in some respects, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, we, we try our best, and we still make mistakes. Fathers fail their children. And everybody said, come on. Amen. <laughs> we do. We're not perfect human beings. It's just what it is. And when Jesus is talking here about the teachers, all teachers are to be evaluated alongside the great teacher. What they say, they must be compared with what Jesus said. And this is what, you know, James talks about, that teachers are going to be judged more strongly in the end. You know, if we conform to his example, then what we're teaching is valid. If we're teaching the scriptures, it's valid. When we don't teach the scriptures or we teach contrary to, to the scriptures, well, then we're supposed to be rejected. So those of us who come and we decide to teach, we have a big, we got a big weight on our shoulders. And Jesus goes, so, well, look, at it. it's not just for teachers, but it also goes for fathers. Call no man a father in, in an ultimate sense. We're not to challenge God's character by judging him according to the standards of our earthly fathers. He's the standard. God is the ultimate standard by which we judge all fatherhood. That's how we have to read the scriptures. The most godly father on earth is simply but a shadow of God's perfection. God is the model father. And, and, and you see that as it permeates throughout all of scripture. In the Old Testament, God models fatherhood and his relationship to Israel. In the Old Testament, God was referred to in many ways, but rarely as father, apart from several texts where God is actually compared, he's actually compared with uh, an earthly father. And I put it up on the screen. The word is used of him only 15 times. In seven instances, God is conceived as, uh, as the father of the nation of Israel. In five other passages, God is called the father of the king in the fulfillment to the one Aspects of the Davidic covenant. It's there. Uh, God is called the father of the orphaned in a song of praise for his tenderness. And in two cases where my father is used, it's an invocation of God in prayer. It's not of any single individual, but it's the nation of Israel coming towards God. In the Gospels, God models fatherhood in his relationship with Jesus Christ. The Son and Jesus always spoke as God, to God as my father. And closer study reveals that Jesus used this uh, address in all of his prayers with the exception of one. 
And that's when he was on the cross. And what did he cry? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason for this exception is that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 when he's up on the cross. But in the other 21 instances where Jesus prayed, he always addressed God as father. Still more significant is the fact that he used the word Abba when referring to father. And, and, and most scholars agree that this is an Aramaic term. Uh, it, it was a term that was used in Judaism to express intimacy and security and, and the tenderness of family. More specifically, it was a word that tiny kids would use to address their fathers. And it's affection of warm, uh, it's a statement of warm trust and affection. It's just like saying, Daddy. Or, or you hear it in the voice of a child when they, they go to the parent and they go, Dad. You, you hear it. That's the term that Jesus is using here. In the New Testament, God models uh, fatherhood and his relationship to believers, the church. God is made our father when we receive Christ in our hearts. John 20 says, Jesus said, Don't hold, do not hold on to me for I have not ascended to the father. Instead, go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father. And who? Your father. To my God. And who? Your God. Galatians chapter 3. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So he's writing to the church, right? For all you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so what I am saying is that as long as there is an heir, heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians, trustees, until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God has sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to his sonship. Because you are his sons, and I would add, and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into his heart, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So there are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. He has adopted us. He has loved us. He is the ultimate father who reaches down to us. If you've accepted Jesus as your savior, then you are a child of God, literally in the fullest sense. Those are things that we sing here. You have been adopted into the divine household and you live under the watchful paternal care of the father. And we have received the spirit of adoption. That's why we can have this intimacy. That's why we can cry out, Abba, Daddy. That is the language of children of the household. It's respectful. It's a term uh, of affection. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman and the Galatian Christians saying that, that we as God's children may likewise address our Father in this way, that depth of the intimacy with God is secured for us by the cross. Uh, and, and there becomes this intimacy that's actually very hard for us to articulate. That's what our Christian faith should be. That's what our understanding needs to be. There is joy unspeakable, so to speak, in this truth. You know, how can I describe the comfort and the thrill in knowing that uh, the one in whose arms that we 
figuratively run into, or rush into as it were, you know, whose lap we sit on is our father. He's our daddy. That's who God the Father is. You know, he, he holds us into the crook of his arm. You know, as a parent, as a grandparent, there's nothing, nothing more special than holding a kid in the crook of your arm. Even if it's somebody else's kid. You know, you don't see this, but we have a, a child with special needs. And the, the, the child who comes here uh, with their family gravitates to one of our leaders. And, and every time the, the child is present and I see the, the gravitation happen to one of our leaders, the, the, the child just grabs and puts the arm around her and puts the head on their shoulder and Jill just lights up. And I can tell. Like you just see this intimacy. You just see this, this connection that is actually just a representation of our Heavenly Father and us. It is so beautiful. No earthly father has embraced his child, though, with such tenderness and affection as God does with us. You know, every once in a while we hear people's ideas of who they think God is. And I need to say this, and I say, I say this more often than not. Just because you have a certain idea about God doesn't mean it's right. You ever get those conversations where people are, you know, I know what God's like. No, it's your idea. I almost swore. Oh, man. Because I get so passionate about this. You know, what is he really like? And you know what? We have to get that when we study and begin to understand the scriptures. Then we can understand what God is really like. And not have these cockamamie ideas that come out of there. In John 14, there's a passage that gives us some really interesting insight. And I'm going to land on this here today. Jesus answered, you, uh, Philip, uh, no, I got to back up. Thomas said to him, John chapter 14, starting verse 5. Thomas, so Jesus and the boys are hanging out. The disciples, they're all hanging out there. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, like we gotta, we got to see what Scripture is saying here. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Of course, that was Thomas. He's talking to Thomas. Now, Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Because very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these because I am going to go to the Father, and I will do Whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and you may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commands. There's an intimacy that Jesus is talking about here that the disciples aren't tracking with at all. It look, at, look at our society. Tech experts say that the more high-tech we get, the more high-touch we desire. 
And I'm not talking about high touch on our phone. I'm talking about the irony that we all desire this high-tech world, right? Clap on, clap off. That, you know, for some of us, that was high-tech, right? But now the universe is getting so much more technical that we're all connected through our devices. And the irony is we feel more like a thing than we do like a person. We feel like, more like a thing than a person. And we need to get back to how we were created. We need to get back to the person. And I think this is actually the message of the gospel. The, the solution to this problem is the gospel. It is the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity, when you think about it, is a personal knowing God. That's the essence. Personal knowledge, if I can put it that way. And the, the, everything else in the Christian faith comes second. Let me explain. When we begin to look at the great prayers of Scripture, these, these great prayers, they go up. They're not because of joy. They're not because of power. They're not for blessing. They're not for comfort. None of them uh, are at all uh, like the prayers that you and I make ourselves because that's our, usually our focus, right? We want success. We want healing. It's all about us. Almost always the great prayers of Scripture go up requesting personal knowledge. Ephesians 1, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's Paul praying. He goes on later in, in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray out of the goodness of riches that he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through pray through faith. I pray that you, being rooted in establishment in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that suppresses knowledge, surpasses knowledge, sorry, that you may be filled with the measure of the all fullness of God. So it's about this intimacy of us connecting with God. The Bible says that we're obsessed with our needs and our problems and our intellectual questions, if I can throw it out there. We're obsessed with knowing ourselves, but the real problem is that we don't know God personally. Are you tracking with me on this? We don't know God personally, or we don't know Him well enough personally. Personally knowing God becomes everything. That is what Christianity is all about. Essentially what we have here is Jesus showing us that personal knowledge of God is the key. You know, Jesus looks at Philip and says, how long have we been together and you still don't know me? See what he's saying here. So what I'm seeing when I read that, it's actually possible to be standing around listening to Jesus. This is what he's saying. To know everything that Jesus has ever taught. Because Philip's one of the disciples. He's there all the time. He's extremely busy doing all Christian activities. They're healing people. They're feeding the hungry. And this is everything all the disciples have been doing. Now, Jesus is talking specifically to Philip. He knew Jesus. He's one of the 12. He's devoted to Jesus. He's been doing all the things that Jesus has said to do. And then Jesus says it's possible to be busy in the Christian life, to have all the knowledge... To be full of zeal and still not know him. And I think this is a huge statement. 
I actually think that this is so practical for us today in our culture. Because Jesus is making the distinction about knowing God and personally knowing God. You can know about God without knowing Him personally. And there's a difference between informational knowing and personal knowing. You know, think about the difference. When you sit down with a person, you want to get to know them, what happens? You begin to start a conversation. It's actually a conversation that's based on informational knowledge. Where are you from? What do you do? Where do you live? You ever meet strangers? Maybe you had that conversation. What do you, you know, a lot of these information, information that we can actually get out of people with actually, without actually having a personal relationship. I can get that information. You can get that information. But that's just the starting place. As the conversation begins to proceed, uh, eventually we come to a line in the correspondence that we have to cross. If you really want to get to know a person, what has to happen? We have to get personal. We have to go a little bit deeper. We have to cross that line. Now you begin to talk about issues that maybe actually affect the way that you live. You talk about things in this conversation maybe that really matter to you. And once you're both willing, because it doesn't always happen, but once you're both willing... Um, uh, to have that kind of personal disclosure once you're both getting a little bit deeper in the conversation and the other person uh, reciprocates just as equally. Both of you do that. Each of you responds to that level of commitment and understanding. Well, then you can get up from that conversation and say, hey, now we can become friends. I have a new friendship. It's not just informational. It's crossed the line somewhere. It becomes personal. And you move from that information to personal knowledge. Now, if you have informational knowledge, uh, sorry, you can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge. But you can't have personal knowledge without informational knowledge. And let me explain. You can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge because you can be at a Starbucks and you can eavesdrop a conversation between two people. And how many people have done that, right? We have all done that. And that's going to give you a whole lot of informational knowledge of people that you have known, uh, know nothing about. Or, if you want, you can actually go and you can study and learn things, you know, from books or wherever else, or documentaries. And, and you can learn and get secondhand, uh, a whole lot of secondhand information about a person or about something else without uh, actually having to do any personal disclosure. There's no risk, you know. You don't have to spend the time to get to know the person you can study or do whatever. You don't have to make the commitment that personal knowledge requires. So there's informational knowledge, there's personal knowledge. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he wrote this, and I love this. There's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. All the cat and dog lovers, ooh. But isn't that true? Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It be, will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. 
Uh, that's the risk, right? That's the risk of relationship. And Jesus saying that it's not only possible, but that it's normal that people who are all around him, and this is a conversation with Philip, they're all busy doing Christian activities. Uh, they're all very knowledgeable about Jesus. And uh, some even got that information secondhand. But, you know, you know, hey, Jerry, why are you making such a big deal of preaching through the Bible? I hear this all the time. You need to, you know, just keep it light and practical. Give us Jesus light and practical. Let me say this. You cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus without knowing anything about him. And how do we know about Jesus? If we're calling ourselves Christians and followers of Christ, how do we know? We know of the Bible. And so you can know about God without knowing him. But you can't know him without knowing about him. You can have informational knowledge without the personal knowledge, but you can't have the personal knowledge without the informational. And so what does that mean? It means that you can know the Bible without knowing God, but you cannot know God without knowing the Bible. And I rest on that today. We need the Scriptures. John 17 says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The point of life, the point of life, the point of life is knowing God. And the definition of life is knowing God. It is what you and I are built for and designed for. Knowing God in an intimate, personal way, not just strictly in an informational way, which is our culture today. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the riches boast of their, or the rich boast of the riches, but let the one who boasts about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. Imagine you are the smallest in the world, the, the smartest person in the world that, that, you know, nobody could ever compare to you. You were just a top dog person. Uh, and whatever, it could be smart, it could be athlete, it could be whatever, that you are the best in the world. He, what he's saying here is that there's still nothing compared to the satisfaction of knowing God, that knowing God, uh, it, that Jesus came that we might know him and know him as we know him, we begin to know the Father. That becomes the most supreme thing. But we don't do that. We secondary that. We put our needs first. We put everything else ahead of that. John 14, again, he comes back. If you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, yeah, you do know that you've, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And so when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about our faith, Christianity is ultimately a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to have personal knowledge of Jesus. We can know about them because we can read it, but do you have a personal knowledge? Do you have what we call that personal relationship? Christianity is so personal, and that's why many people have issues with it. If you find that Christianity is confusing, exclusive, demanding, I would argue that Christianity is probably too personal for you. Because it's when we get personal that we start getting challenged on our ideas. And the first problem is because the teaching of the essence of Christianity is this personal knowing. This teaching sets up an order of things that many people just don't like. The New Testament will not speak to you about anything else until they answer one question. Did you hear what I said? The New Testament will not speak to you about anything else until you answer one question. <coughs> Excuse me. The question is this. Who do you think Jesus is? 
He frames it in another way. He says, who do you say that I am? See, when we understand who Jesus is, no other issues matter until you first answer that question. And this bugs us because you and I, we have a lot of questions. Some of our questions are intellectual ones. Some of our questions are psychological ones. Some folks will say, I would like to become a Christian, but why does God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Or why did this happen to me in my life? Or why did this happen to him or to her? Why did God let that happen? What about all the people that never heard about Jesus? What is God going to do? How am I going to get rid of this addiction? What is God going to do to change me? And I'll say this, none of this will make sense until you answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? And do you accept what Jesus says about himself, that he's the son of the living God, the king of heaven? And if you do accept what he says about himself, have you been willing to move from informational knowledge to personal knowledge? Have you been willing to say that that he has to be the central person in your life? Have you been willing to make personal disclosure and trust him completely to get personal with him? And until you decide whether he is saying about himself as right or not, and if you agree with it, and until you make that personal connection, none of these things will make sense. And you know what? That's what actually bugs us, because we want our questions answered first, and yet Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 who do you say that I am? Well, Jerry, what about my needs? Well, you know what, if Christianity was just a philosophy, we could go to the questions first. But since it's a personal relationship, we have to go to the person first. And and maybe Christianity is just too personal for you. Nicodemus wanted to have a discussion with Jesus, and and Jesus looks at him and says, well, okay, you got to be born again. And, you know, he goes right to the point, you know, about this personal aspect. Nicodemus tries to dodge the question, but Jesus goes right for the heart. It's all about this personal relationship. Well, what about my needs? What about, well, if Christianity was therapy first, we could go there first. But it's a personal relationship first. So we have to put first things first. See, the Bible actually tells us a whole lot about psychology, therapy, society, philosophy, and all the the things you're asking questions about. But Christianity is first and primarily coming to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will make sense until we take that first step. Nothing else will make sense until we begin to answer that question that he has asked us. And until we come to him, if he is a person, we need to go and we need to talk to Jesus about it. We need to talk to him about it. We don't just sit around and talk about him. There is no such thing as a personal relationship without a personal disclosure and honesty. So are we being open and honest to God? Are we communicating in prayer? You have to come to him first because Christianity is personal. And yet God is still the one who's always reaching out trying to get our attention. All of our songs uh, talk about this deep personal connection. Do you ever notice that? Our songs, that, and that's the beauty of the artist. That they are able to articulate, maybe what some of us can't, but they are able to articulate music and words, deep personal connection. And sometimes we mock it, you know, there's that wet sloppy kiss song and, you know, all this other stuff. (coughs) Excuse me. But our songs reflect deep personal connection. So why do we resist in worship? 
well, Jerry, I'm Mennonite. And of course, you know, every time I make a Mennonite joke, somebody gets their shorts in a knot. I'm just going to say, lighten up, people. For Pete's sake. It's our, the culture. I get the culture. But if God is asking us to be more personal, why are we so cold? And if we have daddy issues, and it's interesting because when we have daddy issues, regardless of what it is, all we're asking for is an intimate relationship with our physical earthly father. How come we are so obsessed with not showing that same type of relationship with our eternal heavenly father? Why are we afraid to raise our hands? Why are we afraid to go on our knees? Why are we afraid to dance? Why are we afraid to clap other than the fact that most people don't have rhythm? Why? What's going on up here that hasn't connected to here? I'm not the most expressive guy in worship. You know, I can't dance. I've taken ballroom dancing lessons. My wife has tried. I think she's worse than me personally, but that's just, that's just marriage coming out. I love, though, watching people dance. I have a longing within my heart, a wish that I could do that, but I'm so afraid sometimes to go out on the dance floor and look like a complete idiot. But I love watching. I love watching my kids dance. I love watching, I love watching my kids worship and lead in worship. It's a privilege that I have as a, as a father here as they serve alongside. I love watching people in our community. I'm a people watcher and I watch people in our community embrace and get into worship. I love going to camp and, and, and watching youth when I go underneath on Friday night and watching the, you know, the, the ceiling do this because they're jumping and they're pounding and they're having and they're singing their hearts out. I love watching that and sometimes I wonder where do I, where do we miss out the intimacy with our Father? Have we made our faith just intellectual? Have we made our faith strictly informational? Have we driven, drawn a line in the sand and said, God, I'm not going to go over. I'm not going to cross this line. I'm not going to get personal, but I'm just going to stay over here. And Jesus is having a conversation with us just like he is with Philip going, what's your problem? Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There are two Greek words for see. One is something, you know, we see something with the retina. That's one of those Greek words. We see it with our eye. I see the piano. I see the keyboard. The other one means to understand. And that's the word that Jesus is using with Philip in this passage. You know, I can say to you, I see you. And that means I, I, I see you with my eye, right? But we can also say, oh, oh, I see I, I, I see that. I get it. Now, some understand, but they, they still don't get it. Some people will say, well, I see, but they still don't get it. They, they may understand. We may understand the concept, but it doesn't sink down into our hearts. Because when we not just understand something, it has to sink into our hearts. So that, why? So that it affects our whole being. So a lot of us understand, but we prevent that understanding 
to get into our hearts. And I would venture to say that we do that because we're afraid. We're afraid. Your phone's on. You're afraid that it's going to affect your whole being and that God's going to require something from you. And this is what it means to know who God the Father is. Listen to me very carefully. It should affect us three ways. You're calling yourself a believer, it needs to affect us three ways. Yes, it does affect us intellectually. I get it. Knowledge is, is very important. I've been talking about that. But you know what? It does affect us emotionally, and it affects us volitionally. You can have an intellectual faith. In other words, you can sit and talk about all the religious and philosophical issues <clears throat> till the cows come home, but if there's no change in the way that you behave, if there's no character growth, love, joy, peace, etc., then you have a problem. Then your faith is strictly intellectual. You can have an emotional faith where somebody gets excited during worship, but there's actually no life change going on, volitionally or intellectually. You know, we see that sometimes. In, in some, some people just go crazy at concerts or they go crazy in worship services, but, but something clicks out. and they're, So you got the emotion, but you're missing the other two parts. Or you can have a volitional faith. In other words, you can be very dutiful in the way that you live out your religion, if I could put it that way. But there's nothing personal. It's just something I have to do. It's very, uh, uh, it's very mechanical. It's very cold, and there's no warmth. And yet, when it comes to us as believers, when we look at our Heavenly Father, we have to have all three working together in unity. What it means to know God is that the information of who God is begins to sink down into our hearts. And some of our hearts, as C.S. Lewis said, is protected, right? Impenetrable. But it needs to sink down where it has a personal impact. And it needs to get into our heart. And then once it's in our heart, it begins to affect the way we live. And so it's intellectual, it's emotional, and becomes volitional. Do you really want to know God the Father? Is he real to you? That becomes my first question. And then what is getting in your way of knowing him? What is, what is causing Maybe for some it's the emotional, right? Because again, I make the, the, and I'm not just targeting Mennonites. I'm talking to every one of us here. We're, we're afraid. We're afraid of the emotion. I don't want to be too charismatic. No, no, trust me. You'll never be too charismatic. But maybe have some emotion. Maybe have some response. Well, I'm afraid if I do, you know, I might cry. So? What's God got to do? What kind of healing does God have to do in order to, to make some response? Our God's an emotional God. We see that when we read the scriptures. He is, I talked about it last week, the, the issues of how uh, orphans and widows are treated. If you do a little bit more study on that, you see that God gets really bent out of shape. And there's actually this, this pronouncement of judgment on those who mistreat orphans and widows. And it's like getting hammered with rocks. God is an emotional God. He is a just God. 
And he's saying, look, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to know me informationally, but I want you to know me personally. And when you know me personally, it's going to affect you emotionally. And that emotion begins to push us to action. Maybe you have a resentment towards God because your concept of God is all backwards. God the Father. Maybe you're living in disobedience. I am not going to get personal with God because I like the way I'm living my life. I, I don't care what other people say. I'm going to do this and I think God blesses me and I think this and I think that. But you have no freaking clue what the scriptures say. Really? So you put up your own little world and you say, God, I'm going to make you my God in my world and that's how it is. And yet, we don't have relationships like that with people. As a matter of fact, if you try to have relationships based on that kind of attitude with people, you're a lonely person. And God begins to move in and he wants to begin to deal with us personally. And if we are living in disobedience, he's going to begin to deal with that. We know that. So why should I go deeper? I'm going to put up a wall and stay further away. Maybe we're just in a bad relationship. Maybe we're holding on to stuff that we know that God would ask us to set loose. We know it. We know it within the inner recesses of our heart that if we were to come transparent before him, he would say, we're gonna, I, I need you to let that go. And we're just not prepared to. And I'll just say this, that nothing is worth keeping to lose our personal relationship with God. And this is what we're created for. And maybe we realize that you don't know him at all. Maybe that becomes a, a, a realization today. Maybe you are a person sitting here today going, I got the intellectual part down, but that, and I got the volition part. I can do stuff. You know, I can, I can lift chairs. I can write a check. I, I can do stuff, but I don't have the emotional part. And it, it could be any one of the three, but maybe I would just say that you don't really know him at all. Like, do you pray? Do you actually take time and pray to the Father? Or do you just send up flares? Oh God, help. Oh God, bless me. Oh God. As pastor, my desire for you is not to give you a beat down message. My desire to you for you is to get you thinking and to think that there's this intellectual aspect in our relationship with God. There's an emotional aspect in our relationship with God. And there's a volitional aspect. And all three come together nice and easy. So where do you find yourself needing the most work? And maybe you're here today and you're like, Jerry, I don't even know if I can do this stuff. Or maybe I've just actually created way more questions about God, Jesus, and the church. Maybe it's just time for a spiritual reset and you need to do business with God. Joanne was our hostess today. She's the voice behind our pastoral care number or the text, the fingers, the thumbs, however it is. If you want prayer, if you got more questions, more uh, concerns, just text the word soul to the number that's up on the screen. Joanne will respond. Our job is to walk alongside you, to help you, to guide you, to direct you. And I understand that this doesn't come easy. 
We care about your spiritual well-being in this church. We really do. But the person who cares the most really is God the Father looking down on each and every one of us and just saying, I want a relationship with you. So what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of this morning? Let's stand. Yeah, it's Father's Day, but maybe you can't celebrate or appreciate the goodness of an earthly father. I need to say this, you can celebrate a heavenly father. Jess, I'm going to ask you if you'd just close after prayer or after the blessing with good, good father. People are walking out. I want to challenge you in the next few Sundays to come. This is our last Sunday in the round. Some of you are going, yay. Uh, others miss this, but we're going to be going. Because of summer months, we're going to be pushing everything back. I want to challenge you in worship time. You're not going to be seeing each other the way you do now, but I want to challenge you to start stepping out in your expression in worship. I'm probably going to go along the lines. Yes, we're walking in Matthew, but I'm going to go along the lines about talking about worship and how we worship and the expressions of our worship. But I want to challenge you to move from your intellectual to your emotional and your volitional. Many of you know a lot about God, but you're, you're preventing the emotion. Some of you got a lot of emotion with God, but you need a little bit more intellectual. All of us need more volitional. We can, we can always be doing a little bit more of what he requires of us and asks of us. That's my challenge for you for this summer. I hope that you have taken on. And God, I just thank you that we belong to the living God. You are the living God. Jesus, thank you for coming for us. And as you pursued so many in Scripture, the fact of the matter is you pursue us. And some of us here, um, you have spoken to us many times. And I, I thank you that you're always speaking, even when we don't listen, even when we set up our walls and God, we confess that we are filled with self-righteousness and we may feel that we're better than anybody else because we're religious or spiritual or pious or we're not that bad, maybe as the people we gossip about, but we confess that we're probably worse because we know that you are the living God, that you are constantly trying to speak to us, but sometimes we just ignore you. So God, today I thank you that you love us and you change us and I thank you that you put new life into us and that you choose to use us and now I pray for those who have daddy issues and that they wouldn't take their earthly father and hold it up as a mirror to you but rather God I pray that they'd be able to see through that and see that you are the model father and everything else pales into comparison be with those that need healing that need encouragement on a day like this, but also be with those who need to be challenged. Not just so that the Great Commission would get done, but that we would be transformed. So give us a sense of urgency for ourselves and our city, and may an outbreak of goodness and grace explode in this city is my prayer. And we come in humble repentance so that we can be transformed. And my request is that you would transform us, God.
Amen.